Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Good to see you. And welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. Well, this week, we will observe a very somber anniversary. Thursday, May 25, marks three years since George Floyd walked into a convenience store to buy a pack of cigarettes and walked out to meet his death at the hands of Minneapolis police officers. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, many of us took part in protests over one more killing of an unarmed young black man by a white police officer. The difference in this case was that the police officer was charged He was brought to trial, he was found guilty by a jury, and he's now serving time in prison, along with three other police officers on the scene who refused to intervene to save Floyd's life. A lot of credit for the unprecedented justice in this case goes to Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, who was asked by Governor Tim Walz to take over the case himself. And now, in a powerful new book, Ellison recounts the story of the George Floyd trial from start to finish, from the scene at the Cup store on May 25, 2020, to preparation for the trial, to lining up witnesses, to jury selection, to the trial itself, to the verdicts, and to the lessons learned. Keith Ellison's book, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence, reads like a great crime novel, and Attorney General Ellison joins us today to talk about the case and where we go from here. Mr. Attorney General, congratulations on a powerful book, a powerful story with some powerful lessons to be drawn from it. And uh, thank you so much for joining us here on the Bill Press Pod. Well, Bill, it's great to be back, right? I mean, the fact is, you know, you used to invite me on your show on on the regular. It was always very important, impactful time, sharing news with people. And uh, here we are back again. So thank you. Good to be back together again. The book, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. Very uh, appropriate. Uh, The publication date is Tuesday, May 23rd. And May 25 is the third anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. So first, let me ask you, General, uh, here we go. The entire world including you, has seen the video of the murder of George Floyd. It's dominating the news. There are protests all around the world. And the governor calls you up and asks you to take over this case. What was your reaction? You know, my reaction was step up and do the best you can. Mm. Um, I, I, I will tell you, I know a lot of folks who would who would say, well, I was so devastated. I had pangs of self-doubt. Honestly, Bill, to be honest, I didn't. Uh, I have been working on this issue of police uh, accountability for decades. I knew the issue. Uh, I had been a trial lawyer for 16 years, and I just felt like, hey, look, let me let me do what I can to restore some sense of fairness, restore some sense that 
you know, there can be real accountability for the officers who committed this horrendous act against George Floyd. So that's how I felt. Did you have any doubt at that time that George Floyd had been murdered, that this was a case of homicide? I was certain that he was murdered, that he was, and, and homicide is death by hands of another. Murder is intentional killing without any right. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I felt that they were both, <laughs> quite honestly. Uh, and, and so, uh, and so I did, but I did know one thing, just because that was my perception did not mean that we could prove it in the court. And that was, uh, that was the task, right? That was the big, yeah. big lift. Uh, I, I knew that, uh, having done a lot of cases involving uh, police officer witnesses, that um, people do resolve doubts in favor of police. They just do, uh, you know. And I also knew that there was going to be a robust trashing of George Floyd's name. I also knew that there was going to be a lot of questions around the medical causation. What well, did he die from? What we all saw him die from. Uh, and I knew that, uh, you know, the pro the defense attorneys were going to say, oh, no, it was fentanyl. It was uh, anything but what the uh, but the knee on the neck. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 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 so I knew that we had our work cut out for us and I knew it was tough. And I also knew history was on uh, Derek Chauvin's side because usually there is very, very minimal accountability. Uh, and I knew that he had every reason to believe that he might skate through this. Right. I mean, if you recall, Bill. On the morning that this uh, video hit, you know, the famous video, uh, Darnella Frazier, 17-year-old young woman who was on the scene. Uh, on the morning that that video hit, uh, the Minneapolis Police Department was putting out press releases saying uh, that George Floyd died as a result of a medical emergency. Yep. No mention of, of violence, no mention of force, no mention of anything. Just He just fell over and died, according to them. You mentioned several times that um, the Rodney King trial from 1992 sort of hung over your head, right? That, yeah. That, that told you a lot about history was not on your side. Right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. She's, it, uh, you know, the bottom line is Rodney King, that matter, ended in a, a state on the state side. It, it resolved in a uh, acquittal. Uh, but but look, you know, even even Walter Scott, who was gunned down in South Carolina, that was a hung jury. Um, Eric Garner killed in Staten Island. No, there was still no prosecution on that to this very, very day. Uh, Laquan McDonald in Chicago shot down after four years of, of nothing happening. And only when the video was released, you know, did any meaningful accountability move forward. Uh, so, you know, these cases generally are ones where we don't take action, which in my mind is why they continue. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, in, in the book, you take us through the event itself, the preparation for the trial, the trial, itself, jury selection, the trial itself, the verdict, uh, and lessons to be drawn. I want to ask you about each of those. Let's start with the event itself. I mean, <laughs> we got to be reminded, this was all about a fake $20 bill, right? Fake 20 which, which he may or may not have known was fake. More likely than not. Unbelievable. You know, Bill, more, more likely than not, he, didn't, he never knew that it was fake. Uh, he had a friend who gave him those 220s earlier that day. Uh, and um, and, and she, she said, hey, I, I'm the one who gave him the 20s. And when I looked at the 20s, I could not tell they were fake. They looked real to me. 
Now, if you're a retailer and you're trained hmm. that these things, you no know, one look what to look for, then you know. And this uh, the young clerk lifted it up to the light and said, "Oh, this is fake." But I don't think there's any reason to believe that George Floyd knew that. In fact, when he was confronted, you know, at one point Chauvin says, "Well, why is he being arrested?" He says this to J. Alexander King and. Uh, he says it to Thomas Lane, the other officers on the scene, and they say, oh, fraud. He said, and George Floyd pipes up, what? What fraud? What are you talking about? And so George Floyd never uh, signals in any way that he is aware uh, of, of that he has that he's being arrested for a fake 20 in the whole episode. Right. Yeah. Now, I thought I knew all the details of because we've seen the video so many times and read so much about it. But I have to tell you, one of the most powerful parts of your book to me was you put together the from all the police cameras, uh, you know, their body cameras, the transcript mm -hmm. of that entire event, right? I don't see how anybody could read that transcript and not come to the same conclusion that you did, that this was a clear case of excessive use of force. Well, I mean, he starts out saying he can't breathe, starts out pleading for his mom, starts out trying to negotiate with the officers in some way to get a breath, negotiate to get a breath, yeah. not even to get released. At all times, he's respectful of them. He's saying, Mr. Officer, sir, please. He never uh, verbally lashes out at them at all. And then... Uh, before you know it, his his words, they start to get more distance between them. His voice gets thicker. His tongue gets thicker until he stops talking. All the while, they check his pulse and find him to have no pulse. Even though they're uh, trained in CPR, nobody engages in uh, giving him any assistance. He's crying out in agony. One thing that you can't really tell from the tape, or I couldn't tell when I saw it first, is that behind his back, he, they're doing pain compliance moves on his hands, you know, like twisting his hands and fingers in very uh, painful uh, um, directions. That's going on as he is on the ground. Um, and so then he stops talking altogether, and the crowd is like, he's not talking now. He's not talking now. Because one of the yeah. officers erroneously says, hey, um, if he's talking, he's breathing. But it's like he's not talking now. They still don't get up. They still don't let up. They stay there another three, four minutes uh, until they never actually Chauvin never gets up until the EMS um, specialists uh, pull him, uh, pull him off and then put George Floyd's body on the gurney where his head and his hands uh, flop around. Uh, he's completely unresponsive and probably dead by that time. So that's yeah. what happens. It, and it takes place over the course of nine minutes. Originally, people said 846. Actually, it was longer than that. So, yeah. 929, you make the yes. point, right? Which became really sort of the, the heart uh, of the testimony and the heart of the trial. Uh, and by the way, in that transcript, I just looking at my note, 27 times, 27 times right. he said, I can't breathe, right? Yeah, uh, what does it take? What does it take? Right. You know? So then you got to get ready for this trial. Um, you didn't have anything to do with this, but um, do you feel that you got the right judge? Yeah. And let me tell you this. Um, judge Cahill is, uh, he's been defensive counsel. He's been a prosecutor and he's been a judge. So I think we had a good draw, 
he's not a soft touch. We knew that he was not going to do us any favors at all. He he uh, spent many years as a defender, so he's very careful about making sure the defendant's rights are protected. Uh, and that means that the prosecutor is going to have to prove every single little thing, which is our law, which is our system, which is fine. Uh, he made some calls that I agreed with. He made some calls I didn't agree with. He made one call that I actually admit he was right and I was not right, which is to have cameras <laughs> in the courtroom. Mm. At the time, mm-hmm. Bill, at the time, Bill, my, my thought was, you know, this is going to intimidate witnesses. People are going to yeah. be afraid to come forward. Well, he did make the proper accommodations for vulnerable witnesses, and then he tele and then he televised it. And what his decision did is let the world know that uh, this was a fair trial, which is very important. But again, you know, uh, Judge Cahill is uh, he's he has a great smile, very charming guy, but he he can get t- he can get tough when he doesn't like something. And you know, we saw all of that in the trial, and he um, he's a good judge. You know, there's no doubt about it. I will say, Bill, judges are a critical part of why we have uh, of, of, of why we have the situation that we do have. And I think it's an underexamined uh, role. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I was also impressed with the team you put together. I mean, yeah, you had to get your witnesses together. You had to get your medical experts. You had to get the law enforcement officers who would who would agree that this was an excessive use of force. But you had to have the team, right? And oh, and, yeah. and, and again, you, you were not the prosecutor, so you didn't have a built-in prosecution team. You had to build it almost from scratch, right? Yeah, uh, how'd yeah. You do, how, yeah, how'd you do that? Who'd you reach out to? Well, we started with, we had some pretty good prosecutors on staff, but there were two elements that we hadn't really dealt with. One, it's fairly unusual for any prosecutorial office other than the Department of Justice to have experience prosecuting police. It just doesn't happen that much. Nobody has yeah. a lot of experience doing it. Yeah. So I, I had to reach out to a guy who is a former assistant attorney general, a guy named Steve Slisher, very good lawyer who was an assistant, who was a state-level prosecutor, then was a U.S. attorney, an assistant U.S. attorney. And, uh, and he, I didn't know Steve, but he, uh, I reached out to him and I said, look, would you at least consult with us? Didn't even ask him to join a team. And he said, okay, I will. I will do that. And, and so it was, uh, it was great to have him on the team because he understood police culture. He understood uh, how, you know, the, the challenges of putting somebody on trial who, who had a badge. Yeah. Uh, and 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 he was very clear. We are not prosecuting policing. We're prosecuting Derek Chauvin, and uh, that was a decision that we all thought was uh, exactly right. Um, and so, but but I tell you, without Steve's influence, there's a lot of ways that could have gone in the wrong direction. And then the other one is the medical uh, stuff. Now, the medical stuff can get kind of arcane and technical and boring, but I will tell you from a defense standpoint. It may have been the area where they could raise enough, raise enough reasonable doubt that that might have been their path to victory. Well, we knew we had to close that door, and so mm. a friend of mine who uh, was a defense, a civil defense lawyer, uh, this guy Jerry Blackwell, who's now Judge Blackwell, federal district court judge now, he understood 
that we had to make a very tight chain of causation. He helped us identify Judge Tobin, who you will recall as the pulmonologist, right. who, who calculated the reduction in air that George Floyd was getting. He helped us identify the cardiologist, Dr. Katz, who um, understood that, yeah, George Floyd may have had stenosis, but it wasn't fatal. He helped us identify Dr. Smock, who was an emergency room doctor who had seen multiple cases of excited delirium, whether it exists or not. He said George Floyd is neither excited nor delirious. And so we and so we were able to pull together a very tight chain of causation. And our own Hennepin County medical examiner, very professional, but was his his position was, I'm not I'm I believe it was a homicide, but I can't say it was asphyxia because I don't see the telltale medical signs under the slides, under the medical slides. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be able to make that case with what we had. And we were able to do so because of Jerry's advocacy on that. And then, but I got to give a lot of props to Matt, Matt Frank, who was our own uh, uh, U.S., I mean, Assistant uh, Attorney General, who was uh, the head of our criminal group. He handled those on-scene witnesses like a champ. Uh, he and, and that took a lot of tough, uh, tough work because those on-scene witnesses were not professional witnesses. They right. were they were not interested in becoming <laughs> famous. Right. Yeah. They were yeah. they literally yeah. were randomly on uh, at the store, the corner store at 8 p.m. on May 25th at 38th in Chicago Avenue and just saw what happened. So t- dealing with them was a very, very uh, tender, uh, um, very, very difficult uh, easy to mess up uh, sort of thing. So we put that team together and uh, they all worked together as champs. I was so proud of it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, good job. on. That. And then you got to pick 12 jurors, right? Oh Which, my goodness. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you ended up with, um, again, thanks to your team, right? I think a great part. Sure. You Absolutely. ended up with one of the most diverse juries that uh, you'd ever seen uh, in a Minneapolis courtroom, right? Six Absolutely. men, six women, six blacks, six whites, and uh, and skew uh, mainly younger uh, yeah. jury. Yeah, that yeah, and and let me tell you that the credit for that goes to uh, a, a lawyer named Christina Marinakis and Steve Slisher, who I mentioned already. Uh, mm-hmm. What we did is we took every jury one good decision that the Judge uh, Cahill made is that Judge Cahill sent out a questionnaire months before the trial and got a lot of the jury's opinions and impressions on the front end. When we got those, we combed through them carefully uh, and we identified who was going to be open to our theory of the case and who was going to be close to it. We mapped it out and we knew that it was going to take a lot of jurors, that everybody had seen it. But seeing, but being aware of the case does it does not disqualify you. Having a part, having a partiality or a bias does disqualify you. So we went into it knowing full well that a lot of people might have preconceived notions, and they meticulously picked it out. And you know those jurors' stories were interesting as well. As you know, the jurors were not allowed to be identified during yeah. the case, which mm-hmm. is good. They were not on camera, which is good. Uh, and that's a more credit to Judge Cahill who made sure that they were protected. But there was one man, African-American man, who grew up, felt that uh, there was a, a injustice and unfairness, 
said so as we asked him to be candid and open in his views. And because of him expressing his candid views, he, he probably got kicked off the jury. He was bounced. Yeah. 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 You mentioned you mentioned him. Right. Mm-hmm. When we get to the trial, clearly, at least in my reading of the book uh, and your account of the trial, the the key witnesses were the witnesses at the scene, the bystanders or the That's good right. Samaritans, yes. uh, as you call them. I mean, they were an extraordinary group of people from the EMT, the lady who was the EMT, to yeah. uh, the former Genevieve martial Hansen. arts guy. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they, they saw what was going on and they spoke up. And right. you know what? They didn't have to. They yeah. could have just minded their own business. They could have said, I'm not part of this. This mm-hmm. is going to catch me trouble. And they yeah. did what people do. And that is the key to solving this problem of police accountability, police brutality, if you will. Private citizens stepping up and saying, hey, look, uh, this has got to change. I'm not going to stand back and just watch injustice happen. I'm going to be a part of the solution. That is how we're going to change the situation. Uh, You had three 17-year-old girls, one nine-year-old girl. It was a multiracial group. It was was not just whites or not just blacks. It was a group of people. Uh, And and by the way, the officers who killed George Floyd, two whites, one black, one Hmong, uh, that was a multiracial group too. Uh, and, And so were the protesters, as you saw them in the street, were people of all colors, all cultures, all faiths. And and so, you know, the bottom line is these the individual citizens trying to do the right thing, I believe is the key to this whole scenario. Uh, because in the, we, we say we live in a world where nobody cares about anybody else. Not so. People do care, and they stepped up, and they proved it. Um, uh, there were several key phrases that you and your team worked with and that you worked into the trial, which I think were very... Um, Uh, had a great impact on the jury. Uh, One of them was, in your custody is in your care, right? That's right. Absolutely. Very powerful. Well, you know, in your custody is in your care. You know, when you are arrested, when you are in police custody, you can't just get up and walk away. You can't, uh, you know, you can't provide your own medical care. You can't go get your own medical care because you're in their custody. You can't, you are at their mercy Mm -hmm. and therefore you are in their care. And, um, you know, uh, police officers, good officers understand that policing is not just being tough on suspects. It's also caring for vulnerable people too. Caring for vulnerable people is part of what it means to be a good police officer. Because let's be honest, most people who encounter a police officer are not having their best day. Yeah. Yeah. We're having people who are might, might some might be in a mental health crisis, some might be inebriated, some might be just really scared. Um, and that's not to say that the officer should not do their job. They should do their job, and that if that means making that arrest, but you can never take your eye off the ball. It's, you cannot be cruel, right? It's not the officer's job to mete out punishment. It that is that is the responsibility of the court and the uh, but it's not the responsibility of the on-scene officer. And so the on-scene officer needs to make that arrest and then make sure that person fa- you know, deals with the justice system. Um, and so we w- we needed to say, look, you, you know, once you took custody of him, you had to listen to him saying he couldn't breathe. If you're, if you're claiming that he was under the influence of illegal substances, mood-altering substances, 
that's not an excuse for you to be cruel to them, right? And so all these were things that we needed to make the case to the jury. And I'll, and I'll add one more thing, Bill. I mean, you know, uh, sometimes, you know, when people are in the in these cases, the victim is automatically sort of defamed, right? Uh, yeah. You know, they, they defame the victim, trash the victim. Uh, and George Floyd what did have meth and fentanyl in his system. But that did not excuse him from humanity. And it did not excuse him from getting the medical intervention that he needed. He was not out of control. In fact, he was well in control. He was the one, perhaps the yeah. most calm throughout the entire scenario. Yeah, yeah, which is clear again in the transcript. And yeah. the one the one phrase, um, Attorney General, that I thought carried the day, uh, of course, the defense was trying to say, well, he didn't die from the actions of Officer Chauvin. He had, he was in, he had some medical problems. He had an enlarged heart. Uh, right. And one of your attorneys responded, uh, the problem was Floyd's heart was not too big. Chauvin's heart was too small. I mean, mm. wow. That is a, well, I tell you, there's a little story behind that. Jerry Blackwell came up with that line and he gets all the credit for that line, but he buried it in the middle. And I said, man, that needs to be your mic drop line. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he and he delivered it with great, great ability. And, you know, but but it did kind of capture the whole story. Yeah. Right. It, it just put put a put it in a nutshell. Yeah. So um, you complete the trial. You're waiting for the verdict. You don't know how long it's going to take. The verdict came in pretty quickly, didn't it? Oh, I was shocked by how fast it came in. Um, yeah. In fact, uh, you know, I was fidgety. As soon as the judge finished charging the jury, I was fidgety. I was, I didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, so I just got up and got dressed and went down to the courthouse, figuring that we'd be waiting around all day, but you got to be ready. And I tell you, Bill, you know, in, in 16 years of being a trial lawyer, um, Every time the the verdict the jury goes out and the case is now with them, every lawyer involved in the case is a nervous wreck until it, they come back. Sure, it's just nervous wreck. It's just nerve wracking. It's like waiting for the polls to come in on election night. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, it's just yeah. it's, it's not easy, and anybody who's done it knows that. And um, but they came back. You know, uh, honestly, everybody seemed to know before us. Hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we we started seeing the deputies scrambling about we're like okay what are they what are what's going on over there i called a friend of mine who i can't name and say is there a verdict in they go yep like nobody's called us and then a few minutes later we got the call and folks started rushing down we didn't know what the verdict i did not know what the verdict was going to be i knew we put in a good case we mm -hmm. got to get we you know i knew we we did a good job putting on the case but i did not know what the verdicts were going to be i thought that the defense counsel was a good lawyer I think he did as about as well as anybody could do with these facts. And I knew that for some people who just, they, they might not be emotionally prepared to say that somebody charged with their safety is actually the one who created the unsafe situation. You follow what I mean? There yep, might be some absolutely. people, it's just emotionally difficult to say, no, you're the one who committed the crime, the one who was, is there to enforce the law and protect us from crime. And I knew that that was a possibility because if, you know, and I knew they didn't hang though. That was a good thing. I, I thought that might be the case, but I was like, okay, well, here we go. And then we got up there and we heard those verdicts. 
Well, the thing that concerns me still, though, Bill, is that we still have a long way to go in terms of stopping this problem. Yeah. Well, uh, that's what I want to talk to you about next. And, and by the way, you you said yourself at the time, if this doesn't mean um, you didn't use the word justice, you used the word accountability, right? That's right. And that there's a lot more work to do. Uh, and that's the uh, the final part of the book here, uh, Attorney General, which I want to talk to you about. Let's take a, got to take a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Then we'll then we'll come back up and talk about some of the lessons learned that you learned uh, from. Uh, this trial in the murder trial of George Floyd. And today's podcast is brought to you by the American Federation of Teachers, all the good men and women of the AFT, Teachers of America, doing the Lord's work in the classrooms every day from pre pre-K all the way up through higher education under the leadership of President Randy Weingarten. We salute our teachers, we thank them for their great work in the classroom, and we thank them for their longtime support of the Bill Press Pod. Check out their website at aft.org. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. back with the Bill Press Pod. Our guest today, Attorney General Keith Ellison, Attorney General of the state of Minnesota, former member of Congress, longtime good friend. His new book, Out Today, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. So um, what what's the number one lesson you learned from this? First, first of all, you, you certainly proved that um, you got to you got to file charges where there's wrong. You got to follow through yep. and you can win. Yep. But this is certainly not the end of the story, is it? 
Absolutely not. And we have seen an uptick in prosecutions. Um, you know, the fact is, is that in this area, th- th- we we just exist in a state of impunity to a large extent. Um, clear criminal wrongdoing that does not get charged. Um, we've got to prosecute more people. Juries are ready to fairly evaluate the facts uh, in these cases, but they've got to be prosecuted. The other one is, you know, uh, we need administrative remedies like discharges and terminations. Mm. Derek Chauvin had 18 prior complaints, 18 prior complaints. And here's the real sad news, Bill. Uh, he's not even the top 10 um, complaint get- getters in the Whoa. Minneapolis Police Department. Uh, mm. Anyway, um, the chief fired those four officers quickly. Uh, and the, and I tell you, the chief in the um, Tyree Nichols case in Memphis fired those officers quickly, uh, which I think is an important thing for the for the uh, chief to do. But you've got to you've got to prosecute the cases. You've got to prosecute them competently, and then you've got to take administrative remedies like firing, discharge, discipline. And if you don't do those things, you can't. You don't have any hope for um, for things like training to really help. Really help. Training training is yeah. important. Yeah. But I was going to say, you make the point. Uh, training is important, but these officers were trained. They were well trained. I mean, and they Minneapolis, were... Minneapolis has one of the best uh, yep. training programs in the country, right? Absolutely. So, I mean, one of the things yeah. that we did in the trial is we showed you had CPR training, right? Every year, right? You're, 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 you were up to date in your training. Did you use it? No. Well, the question is, what happens? I mean, why is it that somebody could be very well trained and then not use their training? What the conclusion that I came to is that we had a dual system. We had one system where you we would teach the recruits in the, in the uh, academy a certain level of professionalism, give them ethics training, give them anti-bias training. And then when they got on the street, there was some somebody in charge said, that ain't the way we do things. We This is how we really do it. And that second code uh, is what was controlling on the street that day involving George Floyd. And so to be credible, you've got to say, look, this first training that we give you, the one we give you in the academy, we yeah. actually really mean that. We're not playing around with that. And if you break that, you're going to face discipline. Once that gets into the culture, you're going to see a market change. That's the key word that you just use, culture, because right. you point out it was the, it's the culture of the police department, right, that basically poisons some of these guys. Right. Uh, in terms of not not honoring their badge. Well, right. Right. And, and so, so how do you, you how do you change how do you change that culture through the more diversity on the police force or. Well, more diversity is a good more diversity is a good thing. But at the end of the day, you've got to prosecute criminal conduct and you've got to uh, basically discipline people for rule violations. That's what that's the consistent thing. One of the things that we found in Minneapolis Police Department, uh, because the state of Minnesota sued the city of Minneapolis for pattern and practice violations, we found that there were some complaints that were sitting on the chief's desk for over a year. So what does that mean? What does it mean if I, as a citizen, say that this officer treated me badly, whether I'm right or wrong, but there's no disposition of this matter for over a year? It means that 
we're just not taking discipline seriously. I can tell you this, uh, you know, you take the, the Derek Chauvin, he actually had a case where he was on a 14 year old boy's neck for 17 minutes. The mm. kid did not die. His name was John Pope. But in that matter was submitted to uh, his uh, supervisors and was found to be not the basis for discipline. And yet when the U.S. District Court uh, lawyer, when the U.S. Attorney's Office looked at it, he was prosecuted for that, pled guilty to it, and was indicted by a grand jury for it. And 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 so we have a dis we have an issue where when when citizens make complaints, there's got to be a fair disposition. I'm not saying that the officers are always wrong; they're certainly not always wrong. But I would say that there needs to be a fair, expeditious disposition of that matter, so that there is a tight nexus between the offending conduct and the outcome. And if you as a chief say, I think my officer was right in that situation, fine. And if you say, I think he's wrong, also fine. But there can't be a year, year and a half later, because then there's no connection between the offending conduct and the outcome of the case. That's We've got to tighten it up. We're talking about 90 days, six, 60 days, things like that. So that people, so citizens will know there's meaningful accountability. Is this a matter in your judgment that is the responsibility of um, cities, counties, state governments? Uh, let's face it, the federal government, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, which was introduced in February 2001, uh, on 221 rather, yeah. um, hasn't gone anywhere. They've well, totally that, stalled. You're, you're yeah. totally right. And I, I have to be very candid with you this morning, Bill. I, I'm noticing that Tim Scott is uh, announcing his presidential run. Yep. And uh, if history is to be believed, you know, it was him that kind of let the ball drop in the Senate. You know, Cory Booker wanted it. Karen Bass wanted it. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. This was an opportunity to do good. And he said, pass. Uh, and I'm sorry about that. Uh, I can I can tell you that, you know, it is the responsibility of all of us, starting with the citizens. I mean, I don't think this matter would have ever been brought to light if citizens would not have peacefully protested in the street. I am sorry that some people started breaking windows and burning stuff. That is incredibly not helpful, I will say. Uh, but I will say the citizens who peacefully got out in the street and lifted their voices up, they actually helped create the environment where accountability was possible. Um, but, but you know, the leaders who are elected to solve this problem, they cannot just shirk their responsibility. They got to step up and do what's right. The George Floyd Justice and Policing Act has a lot of very good things in it. For example, uh, you know, there was this situation involving Tamir Rice, 12-year-old kid shot and killed in yeah. Cleveland. The officer who did that had been discharged from a prior department for mental unfitness for policing work. And then he gets picked up by Cleveland Police Department. So my thought is, under the George Floyd Justice Policing Act, there would be a national registry which would say you can't just commit mayhem yeah. in one department and then bounce to another. You'd be on that list. Uh, and that would be an important thing for that. Uh, then there would be changes to the um, the qualified immunity law. Uh, and there'd be other changes that would be important. But But Bill, if I may, it is important for us to solve this problem because one, when we have chronic excessive force, unreasonable force against uh, citizenry by the people who are charged with protection and defending people, 
it erodes trust. And when people don't trust the police, the people don't call the police, when people don't rely on the police. And when that happens, people who would commit crimes are freer to do so. I'm yeah. telling you that I yeah. think police brutality makes for an unsafe neighborhood. We've got to have greater level of trust and communication between police and citizens. And that means eliminating this excessive force misconduct issue. The other thing is it's enormously expensive. The city of Minneapolis mm, over a 10 year yeah, period probably right. spent a hundred million dollars on police misconduct cases alone. Cities like New York, DC, LA, way more, Chicago, way more. And then one thing you will happen if you don't deal with this problem, about every five to seven to 10 years, there's civil unrest. And that is enormously mm -hmm. expensive to the city. There's no good business case to ignore police misconduct. <laughs> we have to get our hands on this system or we're going to keep paying. We're going to keep losing lives. We're going to keep eroding trust. And we're going to have a society that is not as good as we could have. Well, the theme there, which you repeat uh, several times at the end of your book, is, quote, there is still so much work to do. Uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison, uh, we are all grateful that you are out there leading the charge uh, and showing the way with uh, all the work that's still left to do. Thank you again for the book, Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence. And thank you for um, all the good work you're doing out in Minneapolis. Thank you for your spending some time with us today on the Bill Press Pod. Always good to talk to you, Keith. Always, always. Take care, Bill. And that's it for today's podcast with uh, Attorney General Keith Ellison. Again, his book is Break the Wheel, Ending the Cycle of Police Violence, a must-read. And uh, there'll be a link in the episode notes to today's podcast for you to buy your own copy of Break the Wheel. A big thanks to Attorney General Keith Ellison. And thanks to all of you for joining us. And we'll be back Friday with, uh, we know you always look forward to our weekly Reporters Roundtable. Uh, a lot to talk about this week for sure. We'll be following the negotiations over the debt ceiling. Maybe that will be resolved by the end of the week. <laughs> Probably not, but we'll talk about that and other news of the week from our nation's capital with three of our top political reporters. Have a great week, folks. Come back and see us on Friday for the Reporters Roundtable and the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.